Thanks for listening to Connection Church's podcast. Today's message is a part of our series, A Better Story. Growing up, we have been told to make our own way, to write our own story. But few of us realize that God has a better story for us. Our prayer is that you come to the understanding that God has the pen in his hand and he is continuing to write a better story for you. Good morning. How's everybody? Good? You excited? How about worship this morning? That was so good, man. So good. God is, God is in this place today. Um, man, he has been working in our church for a while now. And uh, just so excited to see what all he has in mind, what all he has planned. Um, we've already seen two people this morning go from death to life as they put their faith in Christ. And we need to celebrate that, right? Amen. This week, man, this week, God took three of our teenagers Wednesday night from death to life, brought them to salvation as they put faith in Christ. We, uh, we had over a hundred people in the last few weeks sign up for connect groups. And that's not even with the students who welcome back students. And we hadn't, hadn't even got you guys all in connect groups yet. And we got over a hundred people already signed up, new people to be in connect groups, to do life together. And God's got some awesome plans. Um, and, and you saw from those testimonies of some of our students that sent uh, those videos in via their phones to, to let us show you guys. If you're a student here, man, get plugged in. God will change your life, not because of who we are, but because of who he is. And uh, man, get, get involved. It'll be the best journey, man. The, the, the story God has for us is so incredible. And uh, we're going to be talking about that the next six weeks. And we want you to be a part of that story. And God's got a better story for our lives, probably than most of us are actually living, um, including myself. And that better story is found in the gospel story. It's found in his son, Christ. And that's what we're going to be talking about. This whole series is going to be about um, us looking at who we are in Christ. Because a better story happens when we understand who Jesus is and what he's done for us and who we've become as we put our faith in him. All right. And, uh, and this is where we're going as a church. It's going to be awesome. Um, believing God's going to do some incredible things. And we're going to kick this thing off. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 37 is where we're going to be starting out. And uh, just believe that God has some really, really amazing things in store for us. We believe this is the start of a new journey together, a new phase in the life of this church, and uh, couldn't be more excited to be a part of it. Um, there's a couple of things, uh, three things actually, that I want to throw out to you as we begin this. Usually when we do a series, most of our messages are what I would call standalone messages. You can walk in at any point and pick up right there. Um, and, and, but this, this is a little different. We're going to build on each message. And so this is what I would ask. I'd ask three things from you. The first one is to commit to be here. Do what you can. If you've got plans, cancel it, right? Just be here and, and, and make sure you're here. If you're not here, watch it online. But stay with us, man, because I'm telling you, these principles and the things we're going to do over the next six weeks, um, including today, it, it, it's, it's things that are in God's word. And, and his word is powerful and is living and is active and it changes our heart. And I believe that these things will move us closer to Christ, create us more in the image of Christ. And I know this to be true because it's, it's tried and true. It's it's happened in my own life, and a lot of that you'll start hearing throughout this series. So the first thing, commit to be here. The second thing is participate, right? You can say amen and all that, but that's not necessarily the participation um, that I'm talking about. I like that, but you don't, that's not necessary. I'm talking about um, go home and do the things we ask you. There's going to be some times where we say, guys, listen, you need to go home. You need to do this. Go home and do it. I'm promising you that if we'll do this, God will lead us into a better story for our life, his story for our life. 
The third thing is commit to stick it out. Listen, sometimes to heal um, is it, painful. Sometimes we have to realize things about ourselves and about our lives that, that need to be healed. And sometimes that's not comfortable. But this is the thing I can promise you is that this church will walk with, through, through this with you. God will walk through this with you. And if you'll stick it out on the other side, we'll find a better story for our lives. We'll find freedom in Christ. Amen. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump in. And I'm believing that God is going to rock our worlds and change our hearts this morning. Amen. Let's go. God, thank you so much for this morning. God, I thank you for the people who've already said, yeah, I, I, I see Jesus and I want him. And they put their faith in you and they put their trust in you and you grab hold of their lives and taking them from death to life. God, I thank you that you haven't put down the pen in our life, but you're still writing. There's still more to be written as we become a part of your gospel story that is without beginning and without end. It didn't begin in a manger in Bethlehem and it didn't stop at a cross and an empty tomb, God, but that it has continued eternally just as you. And so, God, I thank you that you invite us to be a part of that story today. I pray that our hearts would be um, just engaged and, and challenged by your spirit and brought in to another level, deeper level with you, God, as we find who we are in your son. God, let his name be powerful this morning. Let your spirit rule and reign in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The Andy Griffith Show, starring Andy Griffith. The mate was a mighty sailing man, the skipper brave and sure. Five passengers set sail that day for a three-hour tour. It's a future process, I know I'm in a mess, and my dog ate all my homework last night. So no one told you that was gonna be this way. Yeah, so y'all like some of those shows, right? And uh, one of the things that all of those shows have in common is those are some of the most replayed or rerun shows in the history of television, aren't they? And you say, well, Duck Dynasty just started, but they've been running it. 24-7 for two years, right? You can always find an episode of Duck Dynasty somewhere. And some of y'all lost your minds this week because a new episode of Duck Dynasty came on and Phil and Kay finally got hitched, right? Yeah, delivered all this time just shacking up, right? And now they finally got married in, uh, in this episode. And so, man, and, and these things are replayed, they're rerun, they're rewatched. And, and I was thinking about those things this week and how we'll sit there and watch them and we'll watch them and the reruns happen and they keep replaying over and over and over again. But here's the, the flip side of that. I think sometimes for us, for, for, for people in our lives, we feel sort of like one of those reruns of a sitcom, don't we? You ever felt like that where, where it just seems like your life's on replay and, and you sort of are in this cycle where you think things are getting better and then all of a sudden that same old thing pops up and you know, it happens again and, and, and you go back into this cycle where, where you're just back in that place of condemnation and, and it's like this bad rerun. It's like a bad episode of one of these reruns that you have to keep watching over and over and over again and it seems like your life is just on replay, like it's been DVR'd and somebody's just playing it over and over and over again. And that same thing just keeps coming up over time and time and time again. And you're like, is this just my story? Is this just who I am? 
One of the times that I felt like that in my life, and I've shared this before, probably a lot of you have not heard this, and I don't talk about this a lot, um, but when I was in college, I played baseball at Georgia Southern, and I don't talk about it a lot because it's not very glamorous. It sounds a lot better than it was because I really did not hardly ever play. To put it in perspective, I had three at-bats my first two years of college. That's bad, right? It was about a month into my third season when I finally got my first hit, all right? And, and, and the funny thing was, it was like a little dribbler between first and second. It just got through. I got to first, and everybody's like, there is a God in heaven because Brandon just got a hit in an actual game. And so uh, it wasn't very glamorous. And for me, a lot of that time was spent feeling like I was in this rerun. Every day of my life was like this thing was being played over again. My failures were being relived. It was just another day to remind me that I didn't measure up to the other guys, that I wasn't good enough to be on that team really. And I really think to this day, the only reason they kept me around is because I made really good grades and it brought our team GPA up. I think that's all I was. They're like, hey, really, he's not costing us that much money, but man, he made five A's left quarter. Let's keep that guy around. And so I think I was just the, the GPA lifter upper person. That's all I really was um, in the whole grand scheme of things. And, and it was just one day after the next, after the next, after the next, that it was a reminder of my failures. And Finally, that third year, I started playing a little better. I started getting a little better, um, started learning the game a little better, started doing some things a little bit better on, on the field. And, and when I'd gotten in a couple of games, I'd played well. The guys in front of me seemed to be struggling. And so I decided it was time to go talk to my coach. We called him Skip, and, um, and, and we knew his name. He didn't, I don't think he knew mine, right? And so he just called me Big Guy. And so I went to him one day after practice, and I thought this was the opportune time. I'd had a good game, and, and I thought, man, maybe it's time to ask why I'm not getting to play more. And so I go to Skip, and I say, Skip, um, i got a question for you. Have you got a minute? He says, sure, big guy. I was like, okay, he still doesn't know who I am. Um, and so I walk over there to him, and I'm like, listen, uh, yeah, I feel like I've been playing good whenever I get into games. I feel like, you know, maybe... Maybe I could get a little opportunity. What do I need to do more to get more opportunity to play and to get into more ball games? And I'll never forget this because he really didn't even look at me. He kind of looked off to the right and up where you're kind of standing there like. <laughs> see, looking at kind of like he was taking one of those pictures, you know, like the old pictures. And, and he was looking off and, and, and he just goes, big guy, I think you're overestimating your talent and ability. Oh, dang. <laughs> I was like. You, you're an old man, but I will throw you down. You know, I just, it was bad. And then he didn't even, he just kind of sat there. Yeah, and that was it. And I was like, really, is that, is that it? Is that how this ends? Because one thing you got to understand is baseball was my life. Baseball was my God. It was everything to me. From the time I can remember, that was all that mattered. It was everything. And so here I am faced with this decision of what am I going to do? Obviously, my coach doesn't even believe I'm as good as I think I am. He doesn't believe I need to be on the field. What am I going to do? And I'll tell you what I did. I finished out that season and I hung up my spikes. I put up my glove. I put, um, put away my gear forever. And I had to walk away at the age of 21. I had to walk away from my God. And it was hard. And you know, it's funny because that was such a bad time of my life. And yet it was so hard to give it up. It was so hard to move on. But it's like this rerun every day that keeps going on. And a lot of you have heard that story. But what you haven't heard is this. That I have two recurring dreams in my life. Anybody have recurring dreams? Just, yeah, it's okay to have recurring dreams, I think. I don't know. If it's not, don't tell me. I'll just, just let me live in ignorance. But... One of my recurring dreams is that I can't get to church on time and I don't have my sermon notes. 
And in my dream, I'm just riding around like, I can't find it. It's like, it's at the high school. Somebody took the high school. I don't know where it's at. I can't find it. I don't have my notes. And I'm sure there's like some way to psychologically analyze that. I just figure I don't want to be late for church and I'm anxious about the message. That's a, I, if it's worse than that, just don't tell me, okay? Because I don't want to know. But the other recurring dream, and this is kind of sick, it's kind of sad, it's kind of silly, but I dream that I go back and I play the last two years of my eligibility at Georgia Southern. Because here's the thing, baseball was the only thing I'd ever quit. And I go back and in my dream, it's just a recurring thing. I go, but you know, the struggles are still the same. And it's almost as if 17, 18 years later, this thing is still haunting me. Can y'all relate to that in any way? That there's almost like there's things in your life that at times just seems like it haunts you, like you can't get away from it, like it's just still there. Like every time you turn the corner thinking I'm doing good, I got this going on and you turn around and it's like, boo. And it's still there and it doesn't go anywhere and it brings you down and it haunts you and it just reminds you of your struggles. It reminds you of who you aren't. And for you, this might not be in athletics, but in some area of your life, that person, that place, that thing that seems to always come back, that seems to always come. And and right when you think I'm getting it together, it all seems to fall apart. And you end up right in that same spot again. I was thinking about this in in Genesis chapter 37. I want to talk a little bit about a guy named Joseph. We've heard of Joseph. And I want to read these first 11 verses and just talk about them a little bit and talk about the rest of this chapter. Because there's about 13 chapters that deal with the life of Joseph. In the next few weeks, I want us to be looking at those. I just want to read the first 11 right now. Genesis 37 verse 1 says, Jacob, who was Joseph's father, lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report. So he's out, you know, with his, with his other brothers who are by other mothers, and he goes and brings a bad report. He basically tells on his brothers. Now Israel, this is Jacob, same guy, two names, kind of confusing, but same guy. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a richly ornamented robe for him, the coat of many colors, right? We've heard of that probably. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. So here we see that Joseph is really loved by his fathers, but he's hated by his brothers because his father loves him more. He was born of a lady named Rachel. And so he was loved by his father more. And and Joseph was one of his last sons. He loved him more. Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. This is basically Joseph saying, one day I'm going to rule over you. One day you'll bow to me. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, what is this dream you had? Your mother and I, your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. 
And here's what we start to see in this. And we, we always hear about biblical heroes and we hear about the great things that they've done, but we don't always see the struggles that they have and the difficult times that they go through. Here's Joseph, loved by his father, has a dream from God that basically tells him who he is, who he's going to be. His father has told him who he is. He says, I love you. You know, he's, he's affirmed in his father's love. He's been affirmed in God's love. And I realize that a lot of us don't have either of those. And that becomes a problem. We're going to look at that later in this series. But here's the thing I want you to see right now. He starts out great, but he ends up going. His brothers hate him. He goes out to check on his brothers again. They see him coming from a long way off. They say, here comes this dreamer. Let's kill him. Finally, his oldest brother steps in and says, let's don't kill him. Let's just throw him in this hole. So they get Joseph. They throw him in the pit. Some Midianites come through. So he gets sold into slavery. They take him into slavery into Egypt. He gets sold again to Pharaoh. Pharaoh takes him into his house. Joseph's doing good. I could imagine in Joseph's mind at this point, as he becomes um, actually bought by Potiphar, this guy named Potiphar, as he becomes this um, right-hand man, so to speak, to Potiphar, that Joseph's finally thinking, okay, my dream is coming true. But then Potiphar has a wife we'll call Potiphar, right? Because she was freaky. And so she comes to Joseph and she's like, hey, bedroom. He's like, I can't do that, man. Your, your husband's been so good to me. And so she ends up getting mad. She tries to make him sleep with her. And he finally is just runs out of the room. She grabs his shirt. He runs out. She's still got his shirt. She sets him up, says, you know, honey, look, my uh, Joseph, this guy you brought in here to make fun of us. He tried to sleep with me. Potiphar gets mad. Joseph gets thrown in prison. While he's in prison, he interprets some dreams. I'm giving you 13 chapters really quickly. He interprets some dreams. He asked the cupbearer, one of them whose dreams he interprets, hey, when you get out, don't forget about me, but remind, tell Pharaoh about me. Tell him. You know, you'll be in front of him. Tell him. And so it goes on. Finally, the Pharaoh has some dreams he can't interpret. The cupbearer's memory comes back to him because he had forgotten about Joseph. And he says, oh yeah, Pharaoh, there's this guy in prison. His name's Joseph. You should get him. He interprets dreams. I forgot about him. But can you imagine what was going through Joseph's mind is like he's got all of this promise. He's got all of these thoughts. He's th- he, knows, he knows like God has given me this, this calling. He's given me this um, ability. Or he's given me this uh, dream. And yet everything in his life almost seems to be a rerun, doesn't it? It almost seems like his whole life was a prison of some sort, almost to the point where when he ends up in physical prison, it's symbolic of all the prisons he's lived in before that. All the emotional prisons of his brother's hate, all of the, the mental, all of the anxiety, all of the prisons that he had lived in, whether it was his brother's hate, whether it was being in a pit, whether it was being sold to the Midianites, whether it was being sold to Potiphar, whether it was being framed by Potiphar's wife, whether it was being in jail, whatever it might be, there seems to be a recurring thing in the life of Joseph, this rerun that every time I think I'm getting ahead, something happens and I end up back in this pit. It might not be a physical pit, but I end up back in this pit. Is there anybody in the room today that sometimes, or maybe many times, you think life's going your way and then something happens and it seems to always happen and you just end up back in that place that you thought you had escaped and it happens time and time again. Amen. And this is his life. It was far from perfect. And I believe this. I believe that if we look at ourselves and we look in our heart, that we can relate to Joseph's experience in some way. I believe this. I believe that we can see ourselves in Joseph. 
and the failings and the condemnation that could have so easily sat into his heart, the bitterness that could have sat into his heart because it seems as though his value and his worth has been robbed from him. His identity has been taken from him and the things God said about him may never happen. How easy could condemnation and bitterness and unforgiveness have settled in his heart? Here's the thing I know. Many of us walk in condemnation and we don't even know it. Many of us walk in condemnation and we know it, but we refuse to acknowledge it. And then others of us walk in condemnation and we know it, we'll acknowledge it, but we don't do anything about it. And sometimes it's because we don't know what to do about it. It just seems to be that thing that we can't overcome. But as a Christian, we may feel that something in our life is not able to be overcome. That thing that dominates us, we may feel that we can't overcome it, but that is not the mindset of a Christian. That is the mindset of an atheist. And I'll tell you this, your God is greater than what you're dealing with. Your struggle is not beyond the power of God. And we're going to see this in this. This is how I know this is true. Because it's been in my own life. And a lot more recent than you probably think. Many Christians, including myself, live years believing the scripture that we will know the truth and the truth will set us free. And we believe it and we mentally assent to it. And yet we probably never fully experienced it in our lives. I believe that's unacceptable. Because it leads us to places that do not produce the abundant life that God desires for us. If you can relate to this, then I can probably tell you some patterns in your life. And I want you to listen to these scenarios. And I want you to see where do I fit? How does this play into my life? And the first one is this. If you're a Christian, um, or if you're not a Christian, you probably want to be a good person, right? Most of us don't wake up in the morning and go, I hope I'm a jerk today. I just want to be the best jerk I can possibly be. We typically don't do that. And if we're a Christian, we wake up and we want to be a good Christian. We want to hold up our end of the bargain, right? We want to do right. We want to be accepted. We want to be loved. And we do well until we trip and we stumble and we fall and we somehow don't hold up our end of the bargain. And we're doing good, but then we fall under this condemnation because we didn't hold up our end. I didn't do right. I messed up. I made a mistake. And that struggle with condemnation is, is it kills us. The struggle with condemnation, is a, condemnation is a heavier weight than we can possibly live under and certainly thrive under. We can't do it. It destroys our lives. And then we end up, once we stumble, once we fall, and once we've fallen back under condemnation, we end up in a familiar place that's called burned out and exhausted. Anybody ever been there? Where you tried and you tried and you tried and you tried and you tried to be God's good little boy and you tried to be daddy's good little girl and you tried to impress God and you auditioned for his love and you kept going and you kept going, but it never works out, does it? Our performance isn't impressive to God. And so we keep going and after we do well long enough, after we finally sort of settle our conscience, we slip back in to God's presence. We finally get enough courage to sort of slip back in to God's presence after we feel like we've been good enough long enough. But here's what the Bible says. The Bible doesn't say that we should slip into 
God's presence. The Bible says that if we're in Christ, we can come boldly before the throne of grace to receive mercy and receive grace in our time of need. But it never works out that way because condemnation never leads us to Jesus. It leads us away from Jesus. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, got it right. And they they, they showed us how it would be for all of humanity. That when we screw up, we don't run to God and trust in his grace and mercy. We run from God and play the worst, dumbest game of hide and seek ever. And so we constantly fall back into this shame and this guilt And this condemnation of having let others down, of having let God down. And we feel like I'm not worthy of doing anything for God or for anybody else. How about this one? It's just as common. Sometimes they go together. Life's going pretty good. Things are rocking and rolling pretty good. You're doing pretty good in your marriage or you're doing pretty good in your singleness. You'd probably say your life's being pretty productive. Things are going pretty well. You feel like you got some purpose. Probably if somebody asked you on a scale of one to 10, 10 being really good, you'd probably say my life's a seven, eight or nine, trucking along, getting things done. And then, then it happens, right? Then it happens. See if you're familiar with this. You see them, right? They call. You're reminded of it. And all of a sudden, the quality of your life and your purpose and, and, and just your life in Christ goes from seven, eight, nine to one, two, three. And you find yourself right back in this same place. And when they call, you see them, you're reminded of it, you feel like all the blood either leaves your face or goes to your head. You're not sure which, but there's a turning in your stomach and there's something that happens on the inside of you. You feel like surely everybody in the room knows. And it's almost a panic that takes place and you begin to think, I'm condemned. Condemnation overwhelms. And listen, it's not just condemnation for what they did to you or what you did with them or what you did with it but it's the condemnation for condemnation is that not messed up we begin to condemn ourselves for feeling condemned because if i'm a christian surely i shouldn't be depressed surely i shouldn't feel worthless i must be a bad christian am i even saved and we fall into this trap of condemnation and then finally we live with this fear and anger and anxiety until the encounter with them or they or it has been suppressed somehow. We find some exit to numb it a little bit or maybe time just passes by or maybe we turn to some pills or some alcohol or sex or pornography or sleep or food or some of us, we just quit because we can't take another day like yesterday. And our identity is in this. And this is our story. And if we were honest, we would say, it's always going to be this way. And that's how we feel. I wonder how many of us feel like that's our story. How about this one? You're a driven person. You're a person that, man, when things are clicking, you're getting it done, man. You're, You're getting it done. You're knocking it out. And life is happening. 
You love to build things, not just like building buildings, but you love to build things. Maybe it's a company. Maybe it's people. Maybe you love to build people up. Maybe um, you're, you're, you're building in the community. Maybe it's your reputation and, and your influence because if I can build up my reputation, my influence, I can build up other things. And man, when it's happening and it's getting done, man, and you're seeing progress, it's awesome. And you're loving it and it's working. But when the progress stops, that's when you begin to have the problem. When things aren't getting done. And there's nothing wrong with those qualities. We need people who go out and get things done, right? We need the spark plug, the visionary. We need the person who's willing to push on the flywheel to get it going. The problem is when it's not happening. It's not happening and things aren't getting done. And we become gripped with this fear or this panic that the thing we've been building, the thing we've been working so hard for, this thing that brings acceptance into our life is somehow being stripped away. Our security is somehow being torn from us. And the one thing that gives us identity is being taken and we begin to squeeze it. And the tighter we squeeze it, the more we begin to squeeze the life out of it. And pretty soon it begins to squeeze the life out of us also. And the fear of losing it, whatever it you're building is, is only surpassed by the fear that someone else will pass you. We're riveted, we're torn by envy of those people who are getting it done better than us. To hear that something didn't go their way, on the outside we pretend remorse and, oh, I hate that for them. But on the inside, somewhere in the deepest, darkest corner of our heart, we're sort of smiling. We're not just competitive. Competitive would be an understatement. Because to win or to to, to succeed is not just to win or lose. Our whole life is riding on it. To win means acceptance with God and others. And to lose means condemnation on all fronts. And condemnation and the loss only reminds us of who we knew we were all along. How many of us are this way? I find myself in there, right? I see me in that story. How about this one, the last one? Maybe this is you. You've never really felt secure in who you are, right? You've never really felt like I'm okay. You've never been the popular one. It wouldn't be probably that you would say I'm disliked as much as probably I'm unnoticed. Or at least not noticed to the level you want to be noticed. Or not noticed by the people that you want to notice you. And so you begin to hate anything or anybody that reminds you of who you aren't and who you feel you should be. If you reflected on it and were honest about it, you realize that it's not the attribute or the quality of that person that bothers you so much. It's the value and worth that seems to be added to their life because of that quality or attribute. There's probably a specific one in your life. It could be wealth. It could be charm. It could be personality. It could be material possessions. It could be courage. It could be social status. Think about it like this. Think about this one. How about beauty? How about beauty? We always 
see the beautiful people, don't we? The beautiful people are on TV. And think about the girl who looks at another girl and hates her because the world deems her as beautiful. And when we look at it and we really begin to see it, we realize that it's not the girl that you hate. I don't know if it's Maybelline or one of those makeup commercials, don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Y'all heard that? Like, makes you want to punch her in the throat, right? Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. How about I hate you because I'm going to break your leg? How about that? Let's see how pretty you look in pain. Right? And some of you probably wanted to do that. It's not the beauty that you, it's not her that you hate. It's the beauty because why? It's not even just the beauty. It's the value and worth that seems to be added to her life because of the beauty. And so this girl spends her whole life trying to feel beautiful. On the flip side, think about it like this. How about the girl who's beautiful? She looks and she says, wow, there's value and there's worth added to my life because I'm beautiful. And so what does she do? She spends her whole life trying to maintain her beauty or trying to increase her beauty. And if you look at it, you've got one girl who on one hand is trying to attain value and worth. You've got another girl on the other hand who's trying to maintain value and worth and both are exhausting. But how many of us live our lives either trying to maintain something that gives us our value and worth or trying to attain something that will give us our value and worth? It's because we don't know who we are. And we're searching for something to give us validation. We're searching for something that will give us value and worth. But when it seems that that thing is being threatened or being taken away, we flip out and we fall into condemnation because obviously I'm not good enough. And it pours over into every relationship, including our relationship with God and our relationship with everybody else. We see it in our marriages. We walk into our marriages and we spew venom. We spew hate. We spew discord with our spouse. We hurt the people closest to us. Why do we do that? Because we're hurt. Hurt people hurt people. We can't find validation in ourselves. And certainly if I know I'm not okay and I'm not okay with me, then there's no way anybody can love me just for me. And so we lash out to people. We reflect the wounds of our hearts onto other people because we simply don't know who we are. We see ourselves differently than God sees us if we're in Christ. This condemnation seeps over into every relationship, into everything. If we don't feel valued at work, we don't feel worthy with God, we come home and that sets the stage for finally an explosion that spills out on everybody that's closer to us, or closest to us. I want you to understand condemnation affects every relationship, every relationship with the people around you. It affects every relationship um, with the people closest to you. It affects your relationship with God. And this is the thing I have learned. Condemnation is the number one tool Satan wants to use to bring you down. Condemnation does not want to hinder your life. It wants to destroy your life. And until we can find ourselves secure in the identity of Christ, we're, gonna sh- we're going to struggle. We're going to have difficulties. We're going to be in a place where our life is in this perpetual cycle, constantly being changed. I told you early on that the reason I know this is because I've lived this. 
I thought about this and I prayed about this. I've talked with Susan about this. I've talked with some of our staff about this. I don't know how much I should share. So I just decided like I'll just unload the whole thing. I understand this cycle of condemnation. I understand this cycle of performance-based living. I've lived 37 years driven by performance. That if I wasn't the best, something was wrong. I tried to be the good little boy. I tried to be my daddy's boy. I tried to be my mama's boy. I tried to live right. I tried to do good. And every time I stumbled, I got to a place where I didn't even know if life was worth living. I would love to tell you this, that when I got saved, it all went away. And it didn't. And I can tell you this, and I'll be very honest with you. My shirt right now, these shirts that we wore that say I was, and then we wrote something in, and on the back it says, but God had a better story. My shirt says insecure and burned out. And the reason it says that is because in March of this month and into April of this month, my insecurity and and, and my lack of identity in Christ as a pastor of a growing church that was going on five years old, that, that in that time, in that moment, I was done. I was finished. I was ready to quit. I can't do it anymore. Every conversation I had with somebody was a threat because what if it hurts the church? What if I say something wrong? Every message I would go home and play it in my head over and over and over again because did I say something wrong? Did I make somebody mad? What if I hurt somebody's feelings? Oh my gosh, why did I say that? You're an idiot. And I would think about it. I was, oh man, What if, what if every conversation, every message, every tweet, every Facebook message, every Facebook message that was said about me or said to the church, it all had the potential to rob me of my worth and my value. And I was tired and I was burnt out and I couldn't do it anymore. And so we finally, this is almost like a last ditch effort. And our connect group can tell you, they've heard me talk about this, that and almost as a last-ditch effort, we knew of this place called the Blessing Ranch, and a guy named Dr. John Walker. And we went out to Colorado, and we spent um, a full week out there, Susan, my wife, and myself. And, and, and I'll say this, she has been such an incredible wife because she's put up with so much, and she was by my side through this whole thing, through this struggle, and through this difficulty. And we get out there, and on Monday, it was almost supernatural. I felt like, yes, we're supposed to be here. God's got a plan in this. And then on Tuesday, it felt like I plummeted into hell. And everything that was inside of me seemed to be getting pulled out. It began to be like I was being torn apart. And I was in this place where I told Susan, I was so low, I was so low at this time. I told Susan, I said, let's just go home. And she's like, why? And I said, because I'm not changing. I'm 37 years old and I've been like this for 37 years and it's not going to change. This is who I am. I can't be different. This is who I'm always going to be. And I wrote this in my journal on April 23rd, that Tuesday. I wrote this in my journal and I'm I'm just going to read it as I wrote it. I changed it a little bit because of names. I'm just going to read it because I want you to see where I was on April 23rd of 2013. I want you to see that I didn't come back and preach this series right away. I wanted to, but I wanted to live this. And I'll be honest with you. On Thursday, as we were leaving, Dr. John Walker looks at me and he says, how are you feeling about things? I said, cautiously optimistic. I still didn't know. 
I wanted to come back and I wanted to live it. And I wanted to be able to come to you and say five months later or going on five months later, I can tell you this, that the Bible is true and Jesus's words are true. That if we know the truth, then the truth will set us free. And that is the truth of who we are in Christ. But I want you to hear where I was April 23rd of this year. It says, I was very strong in faith when we moved into full-time ministry. We saw God do amazing things that got us there, like our business selling in a month. The stresses of ministry were definitely felt, but, then my, but my faith was strong and I really trusted in the promises of God. This is straight out of the journal. I think the first time I really questioned anything was when we left my position as a youth pastor at one church and moved to another church as the associate pastor. I was confident because I was so sure I had heard God tell us to go. When it went south so quickly and there was so much hurt, I began to wonder if I'd made a mistake. Did I miss God's leading? I began to seriously doubt myself. It seemed that everything I was confident in was disintegrating. On my 33rd birthday, I found myself in a cabin miles from nowhere with a wife and two kids, no job, a so-called pastor with no ministry. I was, it was during this time at the cabin that I began to feel a great confirmation of my calling as, past, as a pastor and where I felt God gave me a vision for Connection Church. I felt very sure about my calling, but was very unsettled about the church. On one hand, I felt that the Lord was leading us, but in the back of my mind was the question, are you messing up again? Even though I had no clear indication, I had messed up before. Even after God began to do amazing things, I still worried that I'd done something wrong. I'd done the wrong thing, even a very bad thing by starting the church. I took a lot of criticism from people in town and our old church. It hurt deeply and reinforced that what I had done was wrong and even more, I was wrong. We kept pushing through it all, but it took a very heavy toll. I was wiped out before we ever even started and the physical, emotional, and spiritual stress of starting a church, working a full-time job, and finishing my master's didn't refuel my tank and made things worse. After a couple of years, I came under a new type of criticism. It was criticism from within the church, not from the outside. I was accused of being a heretic. I was told I preached works-based salvation. I was given a book called The Gospel because I didn't preach the real gospel. And I was told I preached a man-centered gospel, not a God-centered gospel. I think as I reflect on it, that was the beginning of my crisis of faith because everything I believed had been challenged. I had attended churches that had some theological errors, but what church or denomination doesn't? I began to struggle with whether or not I was in error and whether or not I was wrong and even worse, leading people astray. Another barrage of attacks came about a year to a year and a half later and has continued pretty consistently ever since. This attack is that I'm very shallow and only preach the gospel. So now I've gone from not even knowing the gospel to only preaching the gospel that I didn't know. While we were here in Colorado, I was asked to think about all the faces of those saved and baptized through the ministry of the church, and the only faces I could see were the faces of the critics. These things coupled with dozens of other criticisms and complaints have made me question everything, even the truth of Jesus that changed my life and saved my soul. I've come to the conclusion that self-condemnation does not just want to hinder you, it wants to completely destroy you. Its desire is to destroy everything that is good in you and around you. My greatest desire is to trust again. I want to live more in the truth than I ever have and to be rid of this trap of self-condemnation. Jesus, will you show yourself real in my life again? Will you remove doubt and replace it with trust? I've had so many people tell me who God is, who Jesus is, that I don't even know anymore. And yet I'm supposed to be telling you 
With my default being that something is wrong with me, I've been convinced by someone that everything I believed is wrong and therefore nothing can be right. I just want to know you, Jesus. But where do I fall between Brennan Manning and David Platt, Matt Chandler and Perry Noble, Mark Driscoll and Stephen Furtick? It's just freaking confusing and I just want to know Jesus. I honestly believe the issue is not a faith crisis as much as an identity crisis. The identity of Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit have been so confused by doctrine that I struggle to even know what is true. I know the basics of the gospel. Maybe that's why I never stray from them. But even in regards to how God feels about me, I don't have clarity. I think the criticism played right into the hands of my critical self-condemning nature and said, See, I told you, you're not good enough, you don't measure up, and you don't have what it takes for God either. It's been a long time since I thought of God as smiling and truly taking delight in me. I don't know when the last time was that I read the scripture and saw God's love for me. For so long, I've only seen the work of Jesus on the cross as something God did for himself with me as an afterthought, as though are a pawn in his cosmic game to gain glory. It is as if I felt guilty and wrong for delighting in the delight God has for me. It is my delight in God and his love for me that my heart is transformed and his glory is most clearly seen. I see how my self-condemnation eroded my confidence in myself, which eroded my confidence in who God is because of this. I have not walked in or lived in love or lived in God in a long time. I realize that in all the work God has done and all the things that have happened in this church, I never once felt like God was smiling. I never felt like he delighted in me and took delight in what we were doing or are doing. I think that is why I've never really stopped to celebrate it. It was simply, what do I need to do? Next, Lord. We got back from Colorado that Sunday. I believe God had orchestrated it so that that Sunday we got back. We were doing baptisms. And I was able to stand in the Statesboro High parking lot for the first time in four and a half years. And I was able to watch 35 people go under baptismal waters, come up proclaiming new life in Jesus. And for the first time, I could sense that my heavenly father was smiling over me. Listen, guys, God does not desire for us to live under that trap of condemnation. For many of us, we, we, we go through this cycle so many times that we just end up fried. We're like, I told Susan, Susan, I'm just going to be like this. And we start asking these questions. Will I ever get beyond this? Can I get beyond this? Does God just want me to be like this? Why have I prayed so much, yet this will not go away? Can I possibly be a Christian and feel this way? Is, is this just the way I am? Is this my true identity? And finally, those questions turn into a definitive statement and we say, I will never get beyond this point. That is not the abundant life that Jesus promises us in John 10, 10. His desire is truly that we have life and have it abundantly. And I'm here to tell you today that the truth of God can set you free. And if we'll find our identity in his truth, we will be set free. I can tell you that right now in this moment, I am freer than I've ever been in my entire life. Not because I just said to heck with everything, but because I realized all that God had given me and who he says I am. And I finally allowed his truth, the word of this gospel, not only just to be the savior for my soul, but also be my identity. It is the big T. It is the capital T truth. And all of the experiential truth in the world cannot rob me of who God says I am.
And the reality of this is it's true for you also. I want to read to you right here in the book of Romans, Romans chapter seven, the apostle Paul, who wrote so much of the new Testament writes this in chapter seven. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do, no, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, sounds like Dr. Seuss, it it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in the sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. We see the great apostle Paul in his own cycle of sin and condemnation. And he's almost, you can almost hear the despair in his voice. What a wretched man I am. What a wretched man. And I'm planting churches. What a wretched man I am. I'm writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and I'm going to instruct other people in years to come. What a wretched man that I am. And then he finally says, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then he quotes, or he, he writes, he didn't quote, he wrote it. The, the scripture that we love to say in church, but we hardly ever allow to sink into our hearts. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The key word is in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, it means that your sin has been transferred to Christ on the cross. It has been punished. And basically what Paul is saying is that there is no condemnation There's no room for condemnation left in your life. It's been done away with. It's been killed. And here's the thing that I always get pushed back on is people say, well, you can't just tell them that they're forgiven and there's no condemnation because then they'll just go out and sin. I don't believe that. I believe you'll worship. I believe you'll see who God is and what he's done for you and how he speaks over you and how he delights in you. And you'll take delight in his delight and then you'll go out and be a delight to the world. And I believe this. You can't live like Christ until you see yourself like Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we could get that out of our heads and into our hearts so that we could truly be set free by Christ. At the end of Joseph's life, this is amazing. Joseph went through all of those things and the end of his life, his brothers realize their father is dead. And they're like, oh man, dad's dead. Joseph's going to kill us now. And they're freaking out and they come back groveling to Joseph. And the most amazing thing is if you look at the end of Genesis in chapter 50, one of the most amazing things about the story is you read the first 11 verses, you know all that Joseph goes through. You get to the end of chapter 50 and you begin to realize that Joseph is like, he's not bitter. 
Joseph has no regrets. In fact, if you read the very last things that Joseph speaks, he's speaking the promises of God. And he's saying, listen, the only regret I have in life as I've lived my life in this gospel story, as I found my identity in the dream that God spoke to my heart, as I found my identity in who he says I am, the only regret that I have, the only thing that, or the only thing I ask of you to do is don't let my bones be buried in this pagan country. Because God is going to do what he promised he would do. And he says, don't let my bones stay here. How confident is that? Here's the thing that Joseph knew. How did he not get bitter? How did he not give up? How did he not just quit? How did he not just find some way of escaping it? He knew he wasn't God. He knew. He knew what God had put in his heart. And he gets to this place and he knew the promise of God. How did Paul escape condemnation and live to the glory of God? He knew his promises. He knew that in Christ, I've been set free. How did Joseph escape the condemnation and bitterness? He knew his promises. He knew who he was in God. And what's amazing is when you get to the end of Joseph's life, it's almost as if you hear him telling his people, he says, listen, God has not put down the pen. He's still writing his story. He's not done. And this is the thing I would tell you. God is not finished writing your story. God has not put down the pen in your life. God has greater things to do in you, greater things to do through you. He hasn't put down the pen. He has a better story. It's found in his promises. It's found in Christ. If we are in Christ, there is no more condemnation. We are free to live in God and for God. We don't have to slip into God's presence. We can come before his throne in the righteousness of Christ. What an awesome and amazing God we serve. Here's the thing I realized. I told you on Thursday that I left that place. I left Colorado or we left on Friday morning, Thursday afternoon. He asked me, how, how, how are you feeling? I'm cautiously optimistic. It's about as good as I got. And here's the thing I realized. It took me four days to get there. To get to cautiously optimistic that I can be set free in the truth of Christ. Truly set free from what haunts me, from this rerun. I'm asking you to do it in about 45 minutes. And today, the thing that I'm asking you is not to go, yeah, preacher, I'm all in. Yes, sir. What I'm asking you is to say, I believe there's a better story for my life. I don't believe God's put the pen down. I believe God wants to do something greater in me so he can do something greater through me. I believe God will have the last word in my life. And I'm going to cling to his promises. That's where we are. And over the next five weeks, we're going to impact that. And we're going to look at that. And I believe with all my heart that the Bible is true because I've experienced it for myself. That you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. Not just free to free us in eternity, but free. Free now. In the identity that Jesus has given us. This is not a issue. This is the issue, people. We've got to see ourselves as Christ and then we'll begin to live as Christ as the Spirit empowers us to the glory of God. Will you pray with me, Lord? Thank you for today and just the opportunity 
to be in your presence, God. Thank you for a better story. Thank you for life. Thank you for love and grace and the power of who you are, Lord. God, I pray that you would just speak to hearts right now. I pray for the person who thinks, this is, this is just me. It's not changing. This is just me. I pray for them, Lord, that today hope would begin to replace despair. And even if it's just cautiously optimistic, Lord, I pray that they would begin to turn and the shift will begin to happen in their lives. They would cling and hold to the promises you've given us. I'm going to ask you all to look at me real quick. If you're here today, and listen, the key is in Christ. If we're not in Christ, then condemnation remains because our sin has not been taken away. Everybody look at me. There's people leaving. It's okay. You look at me. If you're not in Christ, condemnation remains. If you're in Christ, it's gone. It's been taken. My question is, are you in Christ? Do you know Him? Have you said, I'll trust Him with my sin. I'll trust Him with my life. I give Him everything. I trust that His provision on the cross, His death and burial and resurrection is sufficient to give me life. If not, then my prayer is that God's speaking to your heart now and that you would come to that place and come to that decision. Accept that invitation that God's given you. I just want to ask you, I'm going to ask you right now, just point blank. You can say, I don't know Him, but I want to. I want Him to have the last word in my life. I I believe the promise of Jesus is true, and I want to know Him. And this is what I want to ask you. I want to ask you right now, if that's you, I want you to put your hand in there so we can celebrate life with you. Amen. Raise your hand. Who else? Put your hand up. Hold it up. Can we pray with you guys? Will will you let us pray with you? Let us, listen, we're going to say, this is what we do. This is why we do it. I'm going to ask you, if you raise your hand today, will you come and let us pray with you out in the hall? Just, Just let us pray. It's a step of faith, man. It's your next step. And listen, this is the thing. Your identity is in Christ. It's not in what anybody in this room thinks of you or what they think about you. It's in Christ. You take your step. You come out here. Let's pray with you. You raise your hand. Come on out. Hey, listen. Just throw it out there again. Who else? You hadn't hadn't stuck your hand up here. Some of y'all need to move. You raise your hand. You need to go. Just go. It's your first step. I'm telling you, it's freeing. It will liberate you because the truth will set you free. Here's the other thing I want to ask. Some of you today, you feel like you're stuck in this rerun. But today you would stand with me and say, I believe there's a better story for my life and I'll hold to the promise of God. I want you to show, I want you to say, I would, I'll stand in that. I believe the promise. Would you stand up right now and say, I believe God has a better story for my life. I'll trust him in that. I know he has a better story. Listen, we're going to flesh this out over the next few weeks. But right now, just pray for hope in your heart and in who you are. Right now, that you would begin to see yourself as Christ. That you would read the scriptures in light of his love and his delight in you. And it begin to transform you. I want to pray over you one more time and we'll be dismissed. God, I thank you so much for today. I pray that you would unite us in this journey of discovering who we are in you. Resting in you. Allowing your truth, the capital T, to dominate our lives. God, we ask that you would silence every voice of hell that would try to take that from us and allow us to stand firm on the foundation of Jesus. We love you, God. I thank you for these people. I thank you for your heart for them. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.